so they're making they're making allegories towards uh, oh god see this is a hell of a question so what they're trying to do is they're trying to talk through uh, how the nature of production and the organization of production at the societal level masses, matches that of the personal or the unconscious so when they're talking about the paranoid this or the perverted that it's more of a think of it as a wry word play as they were talking about paranoiac machines or perverted machines or those issues that a person may have they've become a pervert or a neurotic or this or that uh, think of it that direction when they make these wry comments this is how i interpret it so when they say things like uh, the perverted townspeople or uh, I think they say that that's the phrasing um, the the people in the town the the perverts who are uh, sort of living in the same place that a perverse machine would be the way that their desire operates the way that they work within the creation of the body without organs at large the socius and how they sort of constantly are heading towards those things or trying to sort of overindulge those uh, that's the sort of allegory they're playing with it's a great question actually and I wish more people were here to answer. Where the fuck is everyone? <laughs> or else it would be a really quiet uh, session. Ah, it could be a good one. You never know. Um, uh, do either of you happen to know exactly where I left off last week? <laughs> to continue then from 205. All this finds itself overwhelmed in a new destiny with the despotic machine and imperial representation. In the first place, graphism aligns itself on the voice, falls back on the voice, and becomes writing. At the same time, it induces the voice no longer as the voice of alliance, but as that of a new alliance, a fictitious voice from beyond that expresses itself in the flow of writing as direct filiation. These two fundamental despotic categories are also the movement of graphism that, at one and the same time, subordinates itself to the voice in order to subordinate the voice and supplant it. Then there occurs a crushing of the magic triangle. The voice no longer sings but dictates, decrees. The graphy no longer dances. It ceases to animate bodies but is set into writing on tablets, stones, and books. The eye sets itself to reading. Writing does not entail but implies a kind of blindness, a loss of vision, and of the ability to appraise. It is now the eye that suffers, although it also acquires other functions. Or rather, we are unable to say that the magic triangle is completely crushed. It subsists as a base, as a brick, insofar as the territorial machine continues to function in the framework of the new machine. The triangle has become the base for the pyramid, all of whose sides cause the vocal, the graphic, and the visual to converge towards the imminent unity of the despot. If we call the order of representation in a social system a plane of consistency, it is evident that this plane has changed, that it has become a plane of subordination and no longer one of connotation. And here in the second place is the essential. The flattening of the graphy onto the voice has made a transcendent object jump outside the chain, a mute voice on which the whole chain now seems to depend and in relation to which it becomes linearized. The subordination of graphism to the voice induces a fictitious voice from on high which, inversely, no longer expresses itself except through the writing signs that it emits. Revelation. 
This is perhaps the first assembling of formal operations that will lead to Oedipus, the paralogism of extrapolation, a flattening out or a set of biunivocal relations that leads to the breakaway and elevation of a detached object and the linearization of the chain that derives from this object. It's just jumping straight fucking in, aren't we? Um, oh, so where do we even begin? Uh, up to this point, uh, just in the previous paragraphs, uh, they had been spending some time talking through the three sides of the magic triangle, the voice audition, graphism body, and eye pain. Uh, we had talked through the territorial machine with this, uh, voice being that of the spoken word, the stories we tell, uh, graphism being things not necessarily related to words, but stories told uh, through recording, through etching, and the eye, which is able to witness the pain, uh, especially etched in bodies through scarification or these pre-created debts uh, through uh, these various ceremonies, the eye witnessing the pain, taking it in and being that thing that confirms it and that participation. These, these three elements are part of that territorial machine that exists when we don't have power structures, when we don't have economy, when we live in that primitive socius, uh, the earth. At this point, when we've moved towards the despot, these elements have changed significantly. Now that the parts are all still there, but the machine organizes them differently and thus produces a different type of subjectivity, a different type of uh, desire production. Uh, the first one they go over here is that the graphism, the writing, aligns itself on the voice. It falls back on the voice and becomes writing. There's a significant difference between cave paintings, which are not linear. Uh, for example, there's a lot of uh, ancient cave paintings that are the opposite of that. <laughs> they go in many different directions and your eye can kind of trace it wherever it goes. That's classic graphism as they're describing it. When we move to writing, it's linearized. Now I have an order of the symbols and they go in this direction and this is the style, this is the thing. Graphism aligns itself in the voice. Suddenly the way I speak and the way I write ultimately uh, talk the same thing. But the difficulty here is that, uh, as it talks about it, uh, the voice uh, uh, itself shifts uh, when it becomes writing. Suddenly, uh, writing itself by sort of serving the voice, uh, we think of it when we write, and I'm reading words right now or you're reading this page after me. As we read through these words, uh, you think of it as, oh, someone talking and speaking to you. It feels like maybe voice the writing is serving the voice, but the reality is the opposite. Whereas voice was free and spoken in many ways, now we have married it to graphism. Now it's linearized. And when that happens, the voice is no longer the voice of alliance. It's no longer uh, the stories I tell sort of in a large group, but instead the flow of writing becomes direct filiation. The The things that came before me, the, the lineage that I have, my by direct filiation to the despot, the writing, the words have meaning. Particular words have particular meanings. Dictionaries exist. Edicts from on high. This change to graphism, this change to writing, is a significant shift to Deleuze and Guattari. And that, sh that change in and of itself is a major shift from the territorial to the despotic. That's the first thing I want to go over. I don't think I'm wrong in any of that. I may have over-explained it uh, uh, Ben, webcam, anyone? Am I off? 
with that? Anything to add? Uh, I mean, that sounded fine to me. I guess the the this the despotic um, relationship is is mirroring the Oedipal relation to the phallus described prior. It's probably worth noting in um, oh, yeah. the four types of un the unconscious. Guattari calls this uh, black hole subjectivation because um, a particular signified, we might call it the transcendent signified or whatever, becomes um, like the singularity point, right? That everything leads towards. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll get to that because it's, it's, uh, Oh, I mean, God, I kind of want to talk about it now. Fuck it. Um, the, this, this thing that happens, uh, and it, they talk about it pretty clearly here, the, the flattening of the graphy onto the voice makes this transcendent object jump outside the chain. Uh, this is the, the phallus inside of the Oedipal triangle. I'm, am I, I'm right on that, right, webcam? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's like one of the, the, the things that, that happen at least. Uh, the, the, the essence here, as they say, the subordination of graphism to the voice induces a fictitious voice on high, inversely, that no longer expresses itself except through the writing signs that it emits. Uh, we need to be thinking about this again. This is not our form of representation or our socius. So jump back a little bit and think about a slightly different machine where as you read, you, you're reading God's words on high. You're reading the, the despot's words on high. Um, you know, we may laugh now when we say, of course, God didn't write the Bible. When people say they're literal, it's the literal word of God. That's what they mean. This is what they're talking about. The, the nature of the words being that of God, the despot of, uh, the, the all powerful, the Godhead, whatever that may be. And that nature of things, uh, always places the signs into this, the spot of revelation as they call it, um, and this is the first assim sorry please first. i was just going to say uh, maybe i'm reaching over here but the at least to me it certainly reads like they're making a direct commentary you know commentary on logocentrism right because this is uh, this is exactly what of grammatology is about which i know that they reference in this chapter and in chapter 4 um with regards to like the history of the speech writing hierarchy, right? They're directly talking about writing becoming subordinate, the graphic, right? The grapheme becoming subordinate to the phoneme. Um, with regards to like what you're saying, and, and obviously like this um lended itself towards like a divine logos, right? Like by speaking about things, this is like the Socratic way, right? By speaking about things, we can come to ultimate truths about the universe. Um and it's like there's this idea that there's this thing within you or whatever, and when you speak it's closer to this thing or whatever, this primordial transcendent thing within you that, um, than, than writing it. And so writing is seen to serve speech. And when writing is seen to serve speech, it is also seen to serve this divine logos. Yeah. It's like a quote from Rousseau. I think he says, I think it's from Rousseau. Anyway, it says something like, a the, the Bible is like a very great book, but it is only a book. Yes. And the, and the, the switch here, when it starts becoming essentially one and the same, like they say that it seems that graphism is subordinate, but actually it changes the vocality and the way voice works and the voice works to, to become more linearized, to become more definite, to become written, to add that element of permanence. And then ultimately the eye 
itself uh, changes its position. Now it, uh, as they as they've said before, when it when the eye looks at the way graphism is used now now in writing, it is actually the thing that is pained because it is stretching and pushing and trying to do the thing or the elements uh, as it does stuff. So it's a really interesting. Yeah, I like that. Well, maybe we can add, add to that because r writing or, or the graphic uh, is, is always perpetually um, breaking the rules, right? It's always a, a, a violence, it's a type of violence, um, even when people don't want it to be, right? So for thousands of years, people were doing this phonocentric thing where the voice was more important than the written word, but the written word always had its, had its you know, took its cake too. Uh, and this is something that Saussure was really, really bothered by. And uh, uh, maybe we could say he's like the eye here or whatever. Um, because people, he used to get very frustrated with something being written down and somebody reading it and mispronouncing it. And then the word becoming pronounced that way forever after that, because so many people mispronounced it. And he saw this as a, as a corruption of speech through writing and kept coming up with new justifications for why that wasn't okay or normal or whatever. It had to constantly be shifted back in, thrown back towards the the logos, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and and it changes again. I I keep going back to the eye because it's one of the things I've just I just love about this entire uh, section, uh, the way that the the relationship shifts. Because again, in the territorial machine, uh, the the voice graphy relation is sealed by the eye. It's it's the it's the element that makes the other two work. Uh, it's the one that sort of records the inscription as well. It's part of the recording process. Uh, the, the change to being basically just, it reads the words. It, it isn't doing anything anymore. The eye almost produces nothing. It's just taking in the symbol and passing on, this is the symbol, now brain, why don't you tell me what it means? Instead of having that sort of instant momentary, like imminent connection between what's happening. Uh, it's a it's a big shift there towards from away from uh the the deep recording in the body with the scarification and the pain i just it, the scene is forever etched in my head the first time we went through this i found it so difficult to grasp and now i'm really just getting attached to the way that the eye shifts over time what how we see even how it functions i think is is fascinating as well it reminds me of a battalion thing I know he talks about the eye a lot as well and and suffering from that perspective as well, but I'm not really sure what I would say about it. I, I It feels like they had to have read the eye because it's, it's absolutely one of Bataille's best pieces. And it feels like it's, it's, it's another reason it's stuck in my head because I've been on a Bataille kick over the last few months and uh, the eye is just pain, pain in the eye and a, is a thing that has stuck in me <laughs> because of that uh, for mm. sure. So yeah, for sure it's in that direction, but it's the the other side of it, as you're saying that, and we'll get into that in the next kind of couple paragraphs, but that writing is no longer like a direct designator. The graphy once was, graphy was, graphism was a direct designator. When you look at cave drawings, for example, it's, I see there's, there's men there, there's uh, you know, cattle or whatever they're fighting over there or farms or homes or a war. And there's kind of an instantaneous instant recognition and the shift from graphism to writing uh, that changes graphism to something that is subordinated to language yet owning it. Now 
you actually have this sort of separation between the thing that I'm seeing and the interpretation. Now these things mean something directly. Now I have to figure out what the words are, who's saying it. It, it changes uh, the, the entire nature of, of, of how it works. And I, to your point about it being the, the sort of the phallus that's removed in that triangle and that, that sort of extra element like ultimately there's an absent other that is essentially the despot now that's always got desire and all desire comes back to. And so when I look at graphic, you know, this new writing system, I need to figure out who's saying it. Obviously it's the God. Well, what fuck, what does God want? I need to do it because now there's this deep threat of everything behind all of it because everything is owed and it's an eternal debt. So it just, it shifts everything to being basically this ridiculously pure power structure. Um, of like it just it just deeply painful power structure to the whole thing, but um, any any last comments? I do want to get to the next paragraph because I'm kind of jumping ahead. I think it is perhaps at this juncture that the question "What does it mean?" begins to be heard, and that problems of exegesis prevail over problems of use and efficacy. The emperor, the god, what did he mean? In place of segments of the chain that are always detachable. A detached partial object on which the whole chain depends in place of a polyvocal graphism flush with the real, a biunivocalizing, a biunivocalization formed, forming the transcendent dimension that gives rise to a linearity in place of non-signifying signs that compose the networks of a territorial chain, a despotic signifier from which all the signs uniformly flow in a deterritorialized flow of writing. Men have even been drink, seen drinking this flow. Andrus Simpleni shows how in certain regions of Senegal, Islam superimposes a plane of subordination on the old plane of connotation of animist values. The divine or prophetic word, written or recited, is the foundation of this universe. A transparency of the animist prayer yields to the opacity of the rigid Arab verse. Speech rigidities into formulas whose power is ensured by the truth of the revelation and not by a symbolic or incantatory, incan, incantatory efficacy. The Muslim holy man's learning refers to a hierarchy of names, verses, numbers, and corresponding beings, and, if necessary, the verse will be placed in a bottle filled with pure water. The verse will be drunk. One's body will be rubbed with it, and one's hands will be washed with it. Writing the first deterritorialized flow, drinkable on this account. It flows from the despotic signifier. For what is the signifier in the first instance? What is it in relation to the non-signifying territorial signs? When it jumps outside their chains and imposes, superimposes, a plane of subordination on the plane of eminent connotation? The signifier is the sign that has become a sign of the sign. The despotic sign having replaced the territorial sign, having crossed the threshold of deterritorialization. The signifier is merely the deterritorialized sign itself. The sign made letter. Desire no longer dares to desire, having become a desire of desire, a desire of the despot's desire. The mouth no longer speaks, it drinks the letter. The eye no longer sees, it reads. The body no longer allows itself to be engraved like the earth, but prostrates itself before the engravings of the despot, the region beyond the earth, the new full body. Wonderful piece. It feels like it's almost directly pointed at uh, Lacan's concept of the master signifier as well. 
uh, talking through kind of how this gets to be made and how signification works essentially inside of the space. Um, for anyone who's joined us in our logic of sense discussions, this is very much uh, the entire idea of how signification operates uh, and utilizes not only its own meaning, but that of manifestation and denotation, uh, who speaks and what they're speaking about in order to derive meaning and sense. It's a wonderful uh, book, totally worth doing. Check out on YouTube, we have all of our recordings. Um, I, I just love this paragraph. Anyone want to add things here? Uh, any commentary? Ben, I saw you, uh, you mentioned Robert Graves' The White Goddess, which is phenomenal. Do you want a little bit of commentary there for a moment? I'm 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 trying to like think of how to describe this without sounding completely insane. Sorry. Uh the <clears throat> the white goddess is like a bizarro world version of section three of anti Oedipus. Uh like regardless of how much veracity you lend to the major claim that Roger Robert Graves puts forward about like a single unifying proto-religion or whatever. The, the, the much more interesting part is the way that he traces the changes in language, both spoken and written as different cultures interacted with each other and how uh, language went from almost uh being words that meant things to being positions which are occupied within a grammatical system uh and how letters went from being things or related to things and like changed to become their own sort of like independent units of production it's a really interesting book uh i would like to read it as a server at some point but that's a whole different discussion to have at a different time no i, I mean it's absolutely worth reading it's it reminds me also of i don't know if you've ever read uh, daniel quinn's ishmael but there's a significant amount in there that plays towards the same thing there's a moment when uh ishmael says to the you sort of uh whoever's reading the book uh do you think your dog knows its name and it goes into kind of that idea of what, what do you think the dog's answering? Does it have any clue and why and how we've derived meaning? It's a, it's a wonderful book as well, that direction, but White Goddess is ridiculous. Um, it's a good explanation. You didn't sound too insane at all, I don't think. Good, because it's very easy to sound insane talking about that book. So the, one of the real important things through this paragraph is as we talk through writing uh we talk through meaning again uh, logic sense recommend it uh we open up with the question what does it mean begs to be heard the emperor the god what did he mean in place of segments of the chain that are always detachable this partial object in, in place of a polyvocal graphism flush with the real which is uh, what we were talking about before the way the voice operated or graphism operated now we have something new this new thing floating outside of it this signifier and and how meaning is is de derived how how words gain their meaning in this in this complex new network of meaning rather than being flush with the real and the the thing that matters here is this last bit the in the part that's in uh, italics 
the signifier is merely the deterritorialized sign itself. Uh, the sign made letter. Uh, the if there is a sentence that a sentence maybe and a half uh, that really matters here is is that within this paragraph. Um, when we talk about signification and how we speak, uh, the the written word very specifically, uh, in order for you to determine at any point what way you should pronounce what thing, we rely on a very complex network of signification and language and all of these elements uh, that, as uh, Webcam mentioned, uh, Derrida very much goes through. I think they expand on this and kind of take a different direction, but very much go into uh, the nature of signification, how language works, how, how these things operate. The idea of the sign made letter is the shift. We've gone from just being able to talk directly about a thing or have graphism that directly relies on a thing to now the combination of the two where nothing directly means anything. The line here, desire no longer dares to desire, having become a desire of desire. We are now deterritorialized one removed the sign made letter. We're no longer directly dealing with the real. Now we are a step or two beyond uh, the new full body as they phrase the end of this paragraph. Does that make sense to everyone? Please questions, comments. Uh, if you ever have a question, don't hesitate, type it in the chat uh, or unmute yourself. If uh, you can't unmute yourself, please let us know also. We're happy to unmute you as well. Uh, I'll continue. No water will ever cleanse the signifier of its imperial origin, the signifying master or the master signifier. In vain will the signifier be immersed in the imminent system of language or be used to clear away problems of meaning and signification or be resolved into the coexistence of phenomenic elements where the signified is no more than the summary of the respective differential values of these elements in relationships among themselves. In vain will the comparison of language to exchange and money be pushed to its furthest point, subjecting language to the paradigms of an active capitalism, for one will never prevent the signifier from reintroducing its transcendence and from bearing witness for a vanished despot who still functions in modern imperialism. Even when it speaks Swiss or American, linguistics manipulates the shadow of oriental despotism. Ferdinand de Saussure does not merely emphasize the following, that the arbitrariness of language establishes its sovereignty as a servitude or a generalized slavery visited upon the masses. It has also been shown that two dimensions exist side by side in Saussure, the one horizontal where the signified is reduced to the value of coexisting minimal terms into which the signifier decomposes, but the other vertical, where the signifier is elevated to the concept corresponding to the acoustic image, that is, to the voice taken in its maximum extension, which recomposes the signifier, value as the opposite of coexisting terms, but also the concept as the opposite of the acoustic image. In short, the signifier appears twice, once in a chain of elements in relation to which the signified is always a signifier for another signifier, and a second time in the detached object on which the whole of the chain depends. And that spreads over the chain the effects of signification. There is no phonological or even phonetic code operating on the signifier in the first sense without an overcoding affected by the signifier itself in the second sense. 
There is no linguistic field without biunivocal relations, whether between ideographic and phonetic values or between articulations of different levels, monemes and phonemes, that finally ensure the independence of the linearity of the deterritorialized signs. But such a field remains defined by a transcendence, even when one considers this transcendence as an absence or as an empty locus, performing the necessary foldings, levelings, and subordinations. A transcendence whence issues throughout the system the art inarticulate material flux in which this transcendent operates, opposes, selects, and combines. The signifier. It is curious, therefore, that one can show so well the servitude of the masses with respect to the minimal elements of the sign within the eminence of language, without showing how the domination is exercised through and in the transcendence of the signifier. There, however, as elsewhere, an irreducible exteriority of conquest asserts itself. For if language does not presuppose conquest, the leveling operations that constitute written language indeed presuppose two inscriptions that do not speak the same language. Two languages, one of masters, the other of slaves. Jean Negerol, never going to pronounce that correctly, describes just such a situation. Quote, For the Sumerians, a given sign is water. The Sumerians read this sign A, which signifies water in Sumerian. An Akkadian comes along and asks his Sumerian master, What is the sign? The Sumerian replies, Oh, that's A. The Akkadian takes the sign for A, and on this point there is no longer any relationship between the sign and water, which in Akkadian is called Mu. I believe that the presence of the Akkadians determined the phoneticization of the writing system, and that the contact of two peoples is almost necessary before the spark of a new writing can spring forth. I just that the... Um... There's this weird section of one of uh, Saucier's books, I think what it's called, um, but cha in chapter six, it's like everything, his whole system is completely different, and it's like a, a break in his work, and Derrida identified this as like two different lines of understanding from his work that, you know, Pillars and Guattaro just um, went over briefly there, regard to like the separated, everything's folded back into the substance of voice, right, of the phoneme. Um, and then the other one that's like um, the uh, the chain of signification, um, where a thing becomes like abstracted away from the thing that it's referring to, entering like a, a system of graphic representation that that um, he says is arbitrary. This is the connection between each um, signifier and signified is arbitrary and. Derrida uses this to like fold signifier and signified together and kind of like eliminate the difference um, and just say that there's like an interplay of signs in general, which which Guattari also does in that same um, seminar I talked about earlier, the four types of un the unconscious or whatever, where he sort of goes against Saucer's other notion of like the hierarchical relationship between the signifier and the signified and instead uses the analogy of a tv of turning on a tv which is like you know a collection of different assemblages um working on each other in a reciprocal way because you know the person who's going to go to press a button for the tv oh god 
Sorry about that. <laughs> Some nice thematization there. Um, because depending on what's being shown on the TV, you know, maybe Judge Judy's on the TV and the person watching the TV doesn't want to watch Judge Judy and so they press the button, right? The TV affects the, the assemblage of the TV is affecting them. But at the same time, they also have an effect upon um, the TV. And so it's not a dominant hierarchical relationship between signifier and signified. Which also uh, follows logic of sense, I think, as well. The The idea of signification yeah. is pretty clearly, I, I don't want to say flat, but there's definitely no hierarchy between them. They, they derive meaning from each other in a network sort of setup. So it's, and so we were when we were getting through logic of sense, we were starting to point out there's it's like, oh, this must be the point where Guattari was reading and went because he said logic of sense was like he fell in love with it at some point. We're like, oh, it must be right around here because it matches Guattari's writing from the same time about this stuff. It's really interesting. Uh, to be fair, I think it can be found in Antiodipus as well. Like we're talking about Ray and Hale, right? Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, the the TV, I think, is like the perfect analogy because the TV is its own assemblage, the remote is its own assemblage, and the person is its own assemblage. And there are a lot of desiring machines and assemblages in the person that have to be there, even though they have nothing to do with the TV or anything like that, just because they're part of the same person. That's a phenomenal example. Thank you. Actually, makes it even more clear for me. I like that. Uh, questions, comments? I think... Uh... That was actually a solid explanation of almost both uh, paragraphs, really. Um, but I want to spend a little bit more of time on the last bit uh, here, talking about the nature of uh, language between masters and slaves, the two languages. Uh, the example of the Sumerian and the Akkadian, uh, one being the one who's essentially the dominant personality. Uh, oh, what is that? What is that? Oh, well, this is A. Now they have a sign that represents the thing. This is what they're talking about when they start saying that there is these two languages, the, the signifier that ultimately allows these things to be purely about the writing rather than the direct sort of uh, connection that you might have uh, with the previous machine. It's a really interesting example I just like. Does everyone grasp it? Everyone cool with it? Does it make sense? Well, I, there, there, there has to be some sort of Nietzschean reference there, right? With, with the usage of like a, the master and slave languages. It's, it's. Uh, um, I mean, I mean, for sure. I think it's, it's also a little bit of early foreshadowing when they start talking about uh, the move towards the sort of imperialist side of things, because right now we're still in. Uh, you know, we're moving towards imperialist inscription, but also this is how uh, a demand becomes a sign that's now disconnected for those who are being enslaved. Uh, because we're going to be getting into where we have, we've previously had the discussion, how does Oedipus transfer, for example, a representation to these other places? It's, well, what is that? Oh, here's a representation. I, your new ruler who's now in charge, you need to learn these representations, this writing, this letter that now is divorcing and now is your representation of the thing I've inserted myself deeply. So I think it's a, also a connection back towards that as well. Yeah, I guess I just can't, I can't really think of how it's working here. Maybe they'll make it clearer in a second. In what way? The, the, the master slave, you mean? Yeah, because the only thing I can think of, right, is that, I mean, if we're saying the, 
Akkadian is the master or whatever, sort of imposing their. The, the Akkadian's the slave, for sure. Is here, the slave, for sure. Okay. Uh, the the Sumerians, uh, uh, in, in that relationship, historically they were uh, well, not directly master slave. Uh, might be an extreme way of putting it. It's not terribly far off. The Sumerians, for sure, being the ones in the hegemonal hegemonic uh, uh, power structure over them, and so the idea being. Uh, the Sumerians, uh, they have water, and they read that sign, and the Akkadian comes along, doesn't have any clue what the fuck the sign is. Like, think of a literal sign that says, water here, drink water, ask for water. They don't know what that language is. They don't speak Sumerian or read it. Uh, to them, it would be a different whole symbol that directly means, a different sign that directly means this thing. So when they say, what is that? And they go, oh, this this is what this this sign. That's uh, the word water. It's not agua, as you may say to an American to a, someone in Mexico. Now they have to understand the word, the sign that is now removed another step for them. They now have to deal with saying the sign because that's what the ruling class wants. This is the words of the ruling class. So I no longer am able to just directly connect with the actual thing that is water in the real. Now I'm multiple steps removed uh and that uh, as they say there's no relationship between the sign and water anymore because now it's the sign between a and mu not water water's not even part of their equation because now when they have to think oh i want to say mu so i'm saying a which isn't it so that's the it's one of the ways that uh enslavement becomes very powerful because now signification needs to operate in this completely other place where desire is no longer my desire it's the desire of you might say the other i would say in this case the despot the ruling class the the masters how i read this does that make sense webcam yeah yeah um are we are we sh are we sure that <laughs> sorry i'm just think, still thinking about this uh akkadian uh, thing surely they're the master right they're referring to like the akkadian empire when they took over like the whole mesopotamian area and like enslaved everybody i mean i mean the wording in this example like, like probably but like they're specifically quoting jean mm -hmm. nagerul who says the the line is an akkadian comes along and asks his sumerian master Oh, okay, okay. So I, uh, what is Sumerian, Akkadian? What the fuck was their relationship? Well, they had a complicated relationship over a long time. <laughs> yeah, probably. Jesus. Oh, yeah, no. Like oh, my same. God. It's like thousands of years. Yes, this would be. Yeah, this is more complicated. Oh, great. Sargon of Akkad. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. That's where a certain guy got his name from, unfortunately. Yes. yes. Who's certainly not a Nazi. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, I think, so, whatever the reality may be, uh, and again, there's uh, some loose facts, a lot of biases through this book when it comes to actual historicity, but I think in this specific place they're talking about, like, eschew the ideas, it's the, the slave saying, what is that? Oh, this, this is a, the, I don't even say mu. I don't give them their word. Uh, uh, you demand the person say the language that you use. And now their relationship is with the language instead of the thing through you as the master, you become the despot effectively. The, the sign is your sign. The language is your language. 
Oh, maybe this makes more sense because they had the same. They had they had a non phonetic script, right? Oh. So the sign was in it was in cuneiform, which which you can't pronounce, and so you know the. Um, oh, it was graphism. Is pure graphism then? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, but anyway, like the. So the, the obviously the Akkadians come out and says, like, what does this sign say? Because uh, he doesn't know what it means. And then, you know, um, the um, Sumerian tells him, but obviously, like, what he's telling him is just uh, the word in a separate language that is phonetic for what it means, that they share. And so then he, like, imposes his own language on top of it afterwards, right? And it's interesting. Uh, I mean, just straight out of Wikipedia to that point, uh, scholars refer to Sumerian and Akkadian in the third millennium as Sprachtbund because Akkadian gradually replaced Sumerian as the spoken language somewhere around 2000 BC. But Sumerian continued to be used as a sacred, ceremonial, literary, and scientific language in Mesopotamia until the first century AD. Uh, to go back to the idea and the line they have where it may seem like uh, the written word is subordinate, but ultimately it ends up becoming controlling. I think uh, this is kind of what actually we're talking about. Interesting. So yeah, Sumerian became the written word, even for the Akkadians. That's interesting. I think it's the first written language in general, unless we count like some logographic scripts from earlier that aren't considered a language by linguists. Yeah, so if, if the Akkadians used cuneiform effectively as some type of graphism or written, uh, the fact that Sumerian sort of took that over and now the word replaced the direct sort of connotation, let's say the idea of Sumer of uh, cuneiform is that it's like almost a purely weird phonetic like experience. It's, it's, you, you take it in as, you, as, it, as it's sort of shown to you. It's very difficult to understand. I've never fully grasped it. But like it's a very interesting switch to actually have that. Hmm. I mean, it happened in Greece as well with going from linear B, which is a non-phonetic script to ancient Greek, right? Which really was pronounceable. And that's what made philosophy possible because it meant that you didn't, it was quite, it's quite hard to learn a script that has no phonetic component, right? It takes a lot of work to figure out how to write everything down because you can't be told someone can't say, this is this word. They have to literally show you um, in a time with, with, you know, not really anything much to write on either. That's a bit, bit of a pain. And so scholarly endeavors were pretty rare under Linear B. And then once ancient Greek came in, that's when we get people like Socrates and, and, and stuff like that, right? Because it shifted the hierarchical relationship of knowledge from uh, the graphic component to the um, phonetic component. Yes. Ultimately, marrying graphism as writing. Hmm. Well, that's a whole bunch of different new shit I have to read now that I've got in my browser. Wonderful. Uh, it's great. Any uh, comments or questions uh, for webcam on this wonderful revelation or discussion? Anyone, please. I guess I'll move to the next paragraph.
One cannot better show how an operation of biunivocalization organizes itself around a despotic signifier so that a phonetic and alphabetical chain flows from it. Alphabetical writing is not for illiterates, but by illiterates. It goes by way of illiterates, those unconscious workers. The signifier implies a language that overcodes another language, while the other language is completely coded into phonetic elements. And if the unconscious, in fact, includes the topical order of a double inscription, it is not structured like one language, but like two. The signifier does not appear to keep its promise, which is to give us access to a modern and functional understanding of language. The imperialism of the signifier does not take us beyond the question, what does it mean? It is content to bar the question in advance, to render all the answers insufficient by relegating them to the status of a simple signified. It challenges exegesis in the name of recitation, pure textuality, and superior scientificity. Like the young palace dogs, too quick to drink the verse water, and who never tire of crying. The signifier, you have not reached the signifier, you are still at the level of the signifieds. The signifier is the only thing that gladdens their hearts. But this master signifier remains what it was in ages past, a transcendent stock that distributes lack to all the elements of the chain, something in common for a common absence, the authority that channels all the breaks flows into one and the same locus of one and the same cleavage, the detached object, the phallus and castration, the bar that delivers over all the depressive subjects to the great paranoiac king. O oh, signifier, terrible archaism of the despot, where they still look for the empty tomb, the dead father, and the mystery of the name. And perhaps that is what incites the anger of certain linguists against Lacan, no less than the enthusiasm of his followers. The vigor and the serenity with which Lacan accompanies the signifier back to its source, to its veritable origin, the despotic age, and erects an infernal machine that welds desire to the law. Because everything considered, so Lacan thinks, this is indeed the form in which the signifier is in agreement with the unconscious, and the form in which it produces effects of the signified in the unconscious. The signifier as the repressing representation and the new displaced represented that it induces, the famous metaphors and metonymy, all of that constitutes the overcoding and deterritorialized despotic machine. Uh, I will just quickly say the footnote, uh, Elizabeth Rudinesco's excellent article on Lacan, uh, which we have in the server somewhere, I'll find it and I'll repost it, where she analyzes the twofold aspect of the analytic signifying chain and the transcendent signifier on which the chain depends. She shows that, in this sense, Lacan's theory should be interpreted less as a linguistic conception of the unconscious than as a critique of linguistics in the name of the unconscious. There's so many directions we could take this paragraph. Uh, Ken, I mean, you had to know I was going to webcam parrot too if you want to jump in, but I was totally have to annoy Ken here because Lacan man. Can you hear me all right? There you are. <clears throat> um, I don't know what to say. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's highlighting a specific time of Lacan, right? Um, he ends up moving away from the signifier and going towards this jouissance, right? Um, 
and maybe that's the double articulation they're talking about, but I don't think so. Um, the issue with the master signifier, as I understand it, is that there is no like Archimedean point with which you can like understand significant, like you can't signify signification itself. And so there's a lack of a binary signifier. And so like any sort of master signifier that I use to organize knowledge, whether that be science or hermeneutics or any of this stuff where there's like a whole slew of different interpretations of what it is and whatnot. And eventually someone just comes around and says, this is this because I say so. Um, any end to that is arbitrary and that's called like a quilting point where you just, you just join an arbitrary signifier to the signifier. Um, so science means method or something like that. Um, um, but the, but, but Dresance's enjoyment is what glues that together is how he suggests it. So it's not necessarily that the signifier is transcendent and organizes all of knowledge. He suggests that it's this like um, this pleasure and pain almost, or like excessive bodily excitation that that makes signification meaningful. So I don't know. I'm not sure how to take this part at all. I mean, there's also like a weird thing with like Lacan, right? Where a lot of his work starts to look more like what Guattari was writing at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm assuming that they're talking about like early Lacan. And I know some people say about him that he like, he flips the typical Saucerian linguistic motion of the, um, the signified being more important, right? Yeah. For Lacan, it's about signification itself. It's about the, the signifier rather than the signified often. Yeah, and he says something I don't quite understand. He suggests the signifier falls into the signified. And y'all were talking about uh, Derrida saying, like, folding them together. And I don't know, that was interesting to me, but I don't know quite what that means. He, like, flattens them out so there isn't... Because... He, he draws from a thing Saucer so says it in one of his texts where he talk, he's talking about the, the uh, given um, signifier's relationship to its signified is arbitrary. Right? And they kind of gave an example of that earlier, like with, with the sign and the two people talking about the sign. Um, and so Derrida flattens it. Instead of there being like this two two planes, it's, it's one plane. There is no signifier and signified. There are just signs that interrelate and affect each other. There isn't, like, the word tree doesn't, for, De for Derrida at least, maybe I shouldn't talk about this too much, but for Derrida at least, the word tree doesn't represent a tree. It is just the word tree, and it's different from a tree and has a relationship to an actual tree, but it doesn't stand, it doesn't stand for a tree, it stands in for a tree. Mm -hmm. For sure, that makes sense. Well, and I, I, I don't feel that Deleuze and them wouldn't... D and G in this, I don't think are straying terribly far from that. They're they're pointing at the idea directly that we now have representation, which I think Derrida would agree with that the tree, the word tree represents a tree, uh, but it is it represents really the word, and now we're multiple stages sort of separated from it. And that's I think where they're starting to connect that with Lacan as they flatten the signifier 
and the, the system overall, they go back to, uh, as they do directly just in this, as they're talking about Lacan getting back to the, you know, the concept of the master signifier as, a, as an idea or that thing that sort of uh, gives, sort of bestows meaning on the chain of signification. Uh, this, it feels like this is one of those places, and there's not a lot in here, where they're straight praising Lacan and saying, excellent, you've figured this out. This is the element. I mean, you didn't go far enough, which is their whole thing kind of all the time. But uh, ultimately, like this element where it welds desire to the law, which is what a lot of the master signifier does in its sort of place inside of those things, that's super Lacanian. Am I far off there, Ken? No, not at all. Um, but this part where um, you're saying it bestows meaning, it doesn't. It, I mean, it does, but it doesn't. It, it masquerades as being meaningful. It has no meaning. Um, but, right. But, like, I, I, I'm not saying necessarily a master signifier. I think that's, I, I'm in agreement generally. I think the, the essence mm -hmm. of the master signifier is, is empty. They, they talk about that earlier. Um, and then this thing that it does, though, is by existing. It's, it, when I say bestows, without the master signifier, the chain doesn't come together. There's no greater meaning. Uh, it's, it's, it's important, especially for the despot in this way that they're talking about it, that the, the despot bestows meaning because in logic sense, Deleuze would say that the manifestation is coming from that of the despot. And that's the sort of second part of signification that's important here. And here, how they're phrasing it is that uh, uh, the signifier goes back to its source, its variable origin, the despotic age, and erects an infernal machine that welds desire to law because everything considered, this is indeed the form in which the signifier is in agreement with the unconscious and the form in which it produces effects of the signified in the unconscious. And this is where they're going back to their version of how the unconscious operates rather than, you know, meaning being sort of, uh, you know, taken out in this uh, unconscious play of, of symbols that are rattling around inside of your head. Uh, instead, as they go right into uh, this signifier, now becomes the repressing representation. I mean, we're now talking about how Oedipus yeah. is created. The repressing representation and the displaced represented that it induces. The, the way desire gets trapped, the actual representation that gets put into my unconscious that doesn't really belong there, but I've got to sort of reshape my desire to fit it because I can't just fucking want water. I have to want A. Now I want A, but I don't want A. No one wants A. They just want to have a drink of fucking good water. Uh, and now I can't even say, I can't even tell you what I want because I have to use these fucking representations to do it. So I'm fucked. <laughs> so for me to want water, what does water mean? Well, here's what it means by according to the, the despot. And this, this changes, this master signification changes how this works. And now the unconscious is completely fucked inside of how signification operates inside of it. The specifically the repressing representation and the displaced represented finally show up. We didn't really have that in the territorial socius. Now we're able to see how it's produced through this massive understanding and sort of redraw of Lacanian signification through Derrida almost. It's a very strange combination. Well, I think everything you just said is just literally Lacan, right? Petit objet à jouissance, you know, the desire for the real that you can never fill fill in or whatever um so they they're, they're kind of saying 
Lacan is despotic, which I mean, he said, you know, I will become your new master or whatever, maybe not, not too unfair of a proclamation about Lacan there, um, in that this despotic relationship isn't, um, is artificial in a way, right? Because obviously they don't think of desire as a lack. But this here, like, reorganizes, recodifies things to make it seem like it is. I mean, the major, di one of the major differences is right there with that lack. So, like, you know, where, where are obstacles in, in, uh, in Deleuze and Guattari? Like, like, clearly lack is an obstacle. And I guess psychoanalysis is an obstacle too, or maybe, maybe a clinging to psychoanalysis is an obstacle. But for Lacan, the obstacle to one's desire retroactively creates the thing desired. And that's like the concept of lack. Um, and so Zizek has that whole thing about, and he's actually talking about his wife here, but about like this woman who comes up to him and says, you know, if I only could lose two kilos i would have a perfect body and then he makes the point that that like no no no, that those two kilos are the thing it is the thing that gives the illusion of any sort of possible perfection or something beyond normality if you um if you lost those two kilos you would just have a normal body so, uh but Deleuze and Guattari don't seem to be thinking like that at all um, and, and I'm not sure what to make of that. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't say they're not say, saying at all. I would hesitate with, I think to them, they're a lot of this. It feels like, uh, as, as web compared, this is straight Lacan to a point. And I think to the point is right where they, at the end, make that right comment. So Lacan thinks this is indeed the form in which the signifier is in agreement with the unconscious and the form in which it produces effects of the signified in the unconscious. This is, that's absolutely pure spot on Lacan, like boom. Uh, the next step though, is where I think their critique comes in when they start talking about uh, the paralogism of uh, displacement or lack uh, which is right, as you guys keep talking about, this is where lack is produced inside of this. Uh, the paralogism of displacement, which is where we have the repressing representation and displaced represented show up for the first time. Uh, and as they're talking through it, instead of, and again, Ken, you, you, farm, you, guys, you and Webcam totally know Lacan more than me, so correct me. For Lacan, it kind of stops here. I don't want to, like, I know there's a lot more process, but I mean, as far as like getting more granular, there's not another process that generates this, that lack is these elements. This is how the symbolic works. This is how the signifieds play with each other. This is boom, we're done. The next sentence after that, they go into back to the unconscious, the signifier here as repressing representation, they go right into how it actually operates to produce lack because it does, lack is produced here. It's not just something that exists or is generated sort of out of its own whole, but instead something that is produced through the signifier and signified. And ultimately the referent is desire itself in the form it takes operating beneath the system of representation. By having representation in this setup, we're producing it. And they've sort of talked machinically about how that happens earlier in the paralogisms. 
that's that's to me that's the the next step that they're taking is that that critique and then moving on from there i can't really say because i haven't gotten into like i haven't gotten past seminar 20. um but but you know i can say that lacan says in, in seminar 10 that lack is is a symbolic thing without the symbolic without the signifier there is no lack in the real um but I don't know what the, he then does. The real is what completes you, right? And that's this whole point with like the petite, the petite objet are. But because you enter into a chain of signification, you can never get it. Well, now, I mean, you sort of can, but you might have some sort of like psychosis or something, I think is the, the threat. Um, but the, the, yeah. real, well, the yeah, real is the impasse. Yeah. The real is the impasse of the symbolic hmm. and the imaginary, right? So the real is what this is what the symbolic cannot formalize and what the imaginary cannot identify with. But that I think that's where I stop. I don't really know much more beyond of the workings of the real. I, I do agree that the um what what the main thrust of what they described here is also the main thrust of Lacan's work kind of generalized today and they're saying that this is operating within a wider system that yeah Lacan doesn't talk about uh with regards to what the question Brooks was asking that they, they're kind of going over Lacan's head here or whatever or surrounding him yeah and with, and, uh, with their own formation of how that would happen and the the big the big the big important thing to take away from this purely for the book because Jesus Christ I would love to have a larger discussion around all of this because it's it's fascinating to watch how these things intertwine um, so much. Um, very particularly, we're getting back to how representation works. As we talked about, if we want to go over the entire history of this book, um, you know, it, chapter one is ultimately about how things work in our head. Chapter two is about how our head gets fucked up and the systems. And then chapter three, we're talking about social production. We're talking about the molar versus the molecular. And as we talked about with the molecular inside of the unconscious, how, you know, we get, we, we have these paralogisms, we have the three uh, passive syntheses that generate ourselves and recordings and all this stuff. Here is this next part, because when we talked about Oedipus, and one of the things I know a lot of people had trouble with, I did for sure my first time through this, is how does this relate back? And when we talked about Oedipus, and we talked about how Oedipus sort of comes to play in, they went through the uh, critique of representation, which is the paralogism of displacement uh, or lack. And the way that that works, and it was tough to understand at the time, is we had these kind of elements. First, we have the signifier of the prohibition. We have incest. And I say, oh, no, incest. Ooh. And it generates, when I do that, it generates a corresponding signified. Uh, the signified is a distorted image of desire that is produced by the representation itself. Now, that part is really fucking tough to understand, but they're, they're coming back to it here because we're starting to talk about water and A versus moo. We're talking about how we come to call things what we call them, how signification works. And through all of this, they're driving right back at Lacan and talking through what he totally grasped, which is, hey, this shit comes from on high. This is, there's a master, there's a master slave almost dialectic to this. Um, and we need to talk through how meaning and representation gets pushed into the person. And this is how we have a written word called incest. 
we didn't have that in the territorial times. That's why they talked about that in the 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 classic first uh, territorial, the Earth socius. People can't commit incest. Of course, a, a, a kid can fuck his mom, fuck his sister, dad, like all kinds of awful shit. Like cannibalism, all kinds of weird shit happens. But they didn't call it that because there's no representation. So the, the, the prohibition of incest, uh, that nature is the signifier of prohibition that generates the signified, the, the written word, the thing that it is. Now we have this representation that's produced, which is in this case, the Oedipus complex. I have the Oedipus complex. I have this thing that's pure representation. You don't have shit, but you have to call it something. And ultimately what happens is this element of desire because you have desire pumping all the time, it, it just kind of has to operate beneath this prohibitive system of representation and it gets just fills and, and pushed underneath. Uh, refoulement is the, is the word they used uh, because it's also the word used for backed up toilets and exploding flows. I think this is what they're coming back around to is to say, here is actually how representation starts getting fucked up. And the first thing is we have the written word, which means words mean things. Now we have signification. Now we have representation. And here's where it goes wrong. That's the big sort of coming back all the way around. This is that moment where they're like, Lacan's spot on. Now we're going to take it further. And I'm going to take it right to the next paragraph to continue that as well. Unless anyone has any comments on what I just said. The despotic signifier has the effect of overcoding the territorial chain. The signified. Oh, oh, webcam. Go for it. You want to talk about the alphabetic thing? Go for it. Well, at the beginning, the yeah, the I, the I the, the, Hege, the Hegel line, right? Yeah, because Hegel thinks that alphabetic writing is like the best because it's the closest to speech, um, and the the things like cuneiforms are like barbaric forms of writing, right? Because they're graphical. But the sort of thing, and it's not just him, but like he's like the main one that talks about alphabetic writing all the time. Um, and um, obviously, uh, reading alpha alphabetic writing is is a uh, is not reading at all. You're reading a phonetic script, so you don't actually know how to read. And that's why they say that um, knowing like alphabetic writing is for the illiterate. So they're making fun of Hegel and saying he's illiterate because he doesn't understand the graphic sign. Uh, and it messes right. with this whole idea. Like right? for Hegel, everything has to happen over time, but graphic representation doesn't have doesn't have a temporality, right? It's just, like if you look at a painting, like What's the time frame of the painting? Like, it doesn't have a time frame. The actual, the actual content has no time frame, right? Unlike a sentence uh, in, in phonetic script. Especially one that's hyperlinearized. Yeah. Like, like alphabetic writing, yeah. Oh, like alphabetic writing, yeah. It's a, it goes by, way, it goes by way of illiterates, those unconscious workers, which I just, it's a, such a great little phrase that they have there. Anyway, go ahead. I just wanted to mention that. No, no, that's great. Anytime we can shit on Hegel, I'm happy to. Um, to continue, uh, the despotic signifier has the effect of overcoding the territorial chain. The signified is precisely the effect of the signifier and not what it represents or what it designates. The signified is the sister of the borders and of the mother of the interior. Sister and mother are the concepts that correspond to the great acoustic image, to the voice of the new alliance and direct filiation. Incest is the very operation of overcoding at the two ends of the chain in all the territory ruled by the despot from the borders to the center. 
all the debts of alliance are converted into the infinite debt of the new alliance, and all the extended filiations are subsumed by direct filiation. Incest, or the royal trinity, is therefore the whole of the repressing representation insofar, as it initiates the overcoding. The system of subordination or signification has replaced the system of connotation. To the extent that graphism is flattened onto the voice, the graphism that not so long ago was inscribed flush with the body, body representation subordinates itself to word representation. Sister and mother are the voices signified. But to the extent that this flattening induces a fictitious voice from on high that no longer expresses itself except in the linear flux, the despot himself is the signifier of the voice that, along with the two signifieds, affects the overcoating of the whole chain. What made incest impossible, namely that at times we had the appellations, mother-sister, but not the persons or the bodies, well, at other times we had the bodies, but the appellations disappeared from view as soon as we broke through the prohibitions they bore, has ceased to exist. Incest has become possible in the wedding of the kinship bodies and family appellations in the union of the signifier with its signifieds. The much better put version of the ramble I had uh, there at the very end. We're coming back around to how representation ultimately produces uh, this problem and, and this paralogism of representation and how it works, how incest comes to be, Oedipus comes to be, and how representation starts constraining how desire moves. There is a comment there, uh, Vivian, you're right, with the Appalachians. Uh, I, I have a feeling they don't mean Appalachia. I, my family's from West Virginia, although I, maybe it's a brilliant ahead-of-its-time joke about incest, entirely possible. It's a hell of a long pull for that one, but yeah, why not? <laughs> uh, the West Virginia Appalachians are very famous for incest for anyone not in America. Just mentioning. Um, yeah, uh, please, uh, questions or comments before I move on, because we're about to move out into uh, how these things sort of uh, grow a little bit further, getting a little bit more complex into it. Uh, at this point, please, I'll take a moment. If anyone has questions or comments, uh, now would be the time. I have a question um, that is, you know, generally open to those that have, you know, grappled with the text for a longer time. But just generally speaking, um, their usage of incest here is very specific, although, of course, during conversation with, like, kinship and how anthropology has approached kinship in the in the as a whole system of significations but this is very poetic in a certain way um but also speaking outside of purview of the study of kinship itself at least as it has been done in ethnology or as it was being done in ethnology in the 70s and the 80s when they were writing this so just in general like how would you understand their application of the concept of incest here? Maybe I'm not understanding the question well enough. Um, in, in what way do you mean? I'd... So they're definitely not talking directly, you know, it seems to me that they're not directly talking about practices of incest and the prohibition of incest in the context of um, primitive societies or in the so-called incest taboo that 
I, I believe they are a predicate. I, I believe they are as well. Uh, so they, they, so here's the, there there were incest taboos, and this they're not saying that there was no incest. Uh, the, this is where this starts to get fun. Um, let's say right now, uh, my my son's three, and he calls uh, my wife mommy. Uh, it's his mom. Uh, if I were to say that in China there's no mommy, no. It's true. I, I, as far as I'm aware, it's not the word they really use. They have a, a, ba, a mama, a baba, lots of different other words depending on the locations within different countries. That representation is not a thing. Now, if we go back in time, there is kid, parents fuck kids, kids fuck parents, siblings fucked. All this shit's happened. Like they're not saying that it's never the case. This has never happened. Specifically, though, they're talking about how Oedipus and incest as we know it comes to form, this incest prohibition, or specifically the Oedipal Triangle, how we get to the point where we believe it is something that is so determinant in the human condition. And so when they go back, uh, Freud, for example, uh, oh, fuck, the book's escaping my brain because I'm dumb right now. Um, Freud spent some time and he went, oh, look, all these old places, and a lot of people sense, ethnologists as well, oh, look, all these places have, have taboos on... Uh, incest. It means that uh, everyone must be edipalized in order to be part of a good world and to be good in society, to be, you know, fitting in. And a lot of ethnologists went this direction. The question would be, why do they prohibit incest? And do they prohibit it in the same way that we do? And this is, I think, their core argument is that it's not the same as us saying, look, there's just a general incest prohibition. Well, why? Because things, uh, morals or whatever. They had other reasons uh, to go back to when they talked about uh, desire being flush with the real. Like you didn't fuck your mom inside of those societies, not because there was an incest prohibition per se, but because... Uh, your job was to go out and marry other women to expand your family's reach and alliances. You didn't fuck your sister because your sister was essentially, I don't know, stock mule, and you need to trade her and marry into other families. Uh, the same way that a hunter didn't have a prohibition of killing and eating and cooking the meat before he came back to the, the, the camp, he wouldn't do that not because there's some prohibition against it. And they said, hunters aren't allowed to do this. Never eat your own kill. It's just because it doesn't work that way. Their, their affiliations and alliances determine the organization of their production and where their desires sit. So they never really had these, you know, things that shit happened. Obviously things happened, but they weren't prohibited in the same way through representation as we have it. So now when I approach someone who's never known mommy, who's never known incest, who doesn't like doesn't know these things as representations. And I say, cool, here's 20 things that aren't allowed. Here's a Bible. There you go. The, the way that it works on their unconscious is through representation when, okay, so wait, I, I want that. What is that? Well, this is incest. This is a prohibition. It's like, oh, the moment that happens, that signifier, which exists in the written word, uh, what is that? That's water. That's not what we say. It's what's that? Well, this is incest. Uh, it creates and generates its own corresponding signified. Uh, and it does this within the unconscious, within the, the sort of the nature of experience, within the three syntheses. And with that, we have this distorted image of desire now that is produced by the representation itself, which is the case of the Oedipus complex or the 
this fucked up sort of displaced represented. And underneath all of that, desire is still pulsing towards these things because basically they learn at the moment the thing they know they now can't have. And this process is the difference that they're trying to get back to and have us understand that this is through representation this happens, not through some societal norms or that it's 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 determinant or whatever that I tell people, oh, you can't fuck your mom. It's like, oh, shit, okay. It's like the nature of issuing the edict through representation creates these problems because the nature of the signified doesn't touch desire and doesn't allow desire to meet the real as they phrase it. Is that a better explanation, Goering? Yeah, I got what you mean. Thanks. Yeah, sorry, it's a long journey. If anyone wants to add to that, please. Um, to Rimka's question, uh, expanding on the signified is this sentence, uh, the signified is precisely the effect of the signifier and not what it represents or designates. Um, to go back to, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm, webcam is going to be so angry with me. It feels like um, this is kind of pointing at the same kind of thing that Derrida would say, that the, 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 the word tree isn't representing a tree. It's a word that represents the word tree. Now we can associate that with tree. Yeah, here we should take a step back and we go, we have the signified uh, and the signifier. The signifier uh, generates the signified within the unconscious. It is the thing that sort of creates that. It's not, I'm not directly dealing with at any point water or incest or these other elements. Uh, it is not what it represents or designates. Instead, the signifier generates a signified, not direct connection, which graphism or voice prior to this would have. That probably is butchering Derrida. I'm very sorry, everybody. Yeah, okay, good. Okay, phew. Web uh, compared later in this book, they cite of grammatology and basically just say Derrida is right about language, so it's not unfair. They, they do say that, and I, I, I love Derrida's take on language, so uh, it does help. Does that help, Rimka, as I move down the questions? Awesome. Sven, so it's like when people figured out they haven't been to the moon, they started wanting to go there. Um, um, it's it's uh, Truman, a Truman Show, uh, learning that there is more outside. It's it's the the world that you live in doesn't have these representations or these things. You go about your day and you don't think about it. When I introduce it, the nature of introducing this introduces all these other things. Uh, one of the things Darius says that I've always loved is uh, I think Lacan says it too. You, uh, Derrida, maybe just Derrida. Um, you can't be partially into language. You've either joined language or not. Like that's that's it. You can't be sort of into like, like, oh, I kind of speak English. No, you're 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 in the world of language or not. Um, it's a whole, it's a whole diff difficult thing there. Um, so it's it's not so much that like oh we should go to the moon. It's more um, when I write the word moon versus seeing it and just experiencing it. Once I've written the word moon, now it's a thing. Once I've done the thing. Uh, that generates its secondary signified, and now I'm desiring the displaced represented rather than the thing itself. And this is what happens with incest. This is what happens with cannibalism or any type of perversion. This is how these things affect us with lack and these other elements. Um, hope that answers, Sven. Um, rocket test. So that means there's a meta language we're not aware of. 
or the language we use is meta. Um, oh, that's actually a really good way to think through it. Um, baked into language is meta language, I think would be an answer I'd give. Webcam? Well, I, I would more so say the problem is that language never completes itself, right? Because it always defers to more language. Ooh, I like that. So there's actually no point where we can have a meta language because it would just be more language. No, that's a fair way to put it. It's language is eternally incomplete. And that's, I think, a thing Lacan for sure agrees with, and I think Derrida too. And so the nature of language as people deal with the signifier and the signifieds, I think DNG would even go there and say, like, we can't be satisfied with the signified. That's not how it works, because uh, now we're dealing with the representation of representation. We desire someone else's desire, which is like a classic psychoanalytic trope. Uh, yeah, that, I like that. Yeah, that flows nicely. Uh, Please let me become Jesse. Is a painting of the moon language? No. No. Uh, uh, graphism married with language in writing is language. Um. I don't think here. All right, webcam parrot, please, if you would answer. You have a, you have a better answer than I do. I think he's just typing. Uh, there are two words for language in French. Uh, in one of them, yes, it would be uh, lingue, lingue is like French, English, the literal languages. Uh, language is language in general, which is uh, spoken. Yeah, fair. Okay. And it. I think to DNG, especially to Deleuze, uh, the answer would be no. The, the, the words and the way he talks of language, specifically in logic sense, difference and repetition, and then the way he goes on to talk about art and diagrammatics inside of uh, logic of sensation, uh, the uh, Francis Bacon book, I think uh, he's very clear in how representation, specifically he's talking about language with representation at the center of it, rather than language being the general way people communicate as a specific thing. Because um, there's language in the sense that, like that general sense of, yes, we communicate through things, and there's a language to paintings, there's a language to video games, there's a language to television. Uh, those elements, I don't think he would say, uh, are language in the way that we're talking about it here, uh, specifically. Um, there's diagrammatics and a few other things. Um, it's a type of language, but just not in the, in the phrasing we're talking about. We're being specific here to the, the way I'm talking, the way you read words, and how we find signification through that. Does that make sense, Webcam? Anyone else? Is that a fair thing before I move on? To be fair, I think um, Dillers frequently uses um, long, not long gauge in logic of sense anyway. Yeah, he 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 does. Uh, I I'm sure I anglicize it uh, long. Uh, he's he's for sure talking about that. He's he's actually very clear, especially in uh, again logic of sensation when he talks about the language or the diagrammatics of paintings. Uh, using Francis Bacon as the example throughout the book, like there is a language to that for sure. He believes in that. It's just we're talking here about signification specifically. Um, yeah, here that they're definitely not talking about long gauge. Yeah, we're talking about the way that the graphism has shifted to words and how words become themselves despotic. Uh, Vivian says, kind of jumping in after being away from the text for a while, but does uh, the DBM introduce global persons or were those involved in the PTM as well? 
DBM. God damn it, I'm stupid. Yeah, can you elaborate on what DBM? Uh, is? Despotic, 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 barbarian, barbarian machine, and uh, uh, the other one would be primitive territorial machine. Um, yeah, the global persons, uh, whole persons, or global persons are a thing that don't really exist uh, outside of language in the same way. It's, it's a part of representation. Whole persons exist, but not global in the same way. I don't have a mom, for example, inside of just voice or inside of that sort of the territorial machine and how it worked. I have, I still have a mom. Like I have that, that person that I could call mom. I just don't have a word for the genericized mummy. This is mom or whatever. I still have a mom. There's still someone who gave birth to me, but I'm taken care of in a vast network of people. And even if it's like this poor one woman, single mother in the primitive machine, I still wouldn't call her mom. I don't have a mom that's like a global mom in the same way. Uh, JK mentions in Logic Ascent's fifth series on sense and the four paradoxes of regress and indefinite proliferation in the uses of language. I think I was at uh, hence by it is by no means. So I'll continue from there. Hence, it is by no means a question of knowing if the despot marries his true sister or his true mother, for in any case, his true sister is the sister of the wilderness, just as his true mother is the mother of the tribe. Once incest is possible, it matters little whether it is simulated or not, since in any case, something else again is simulated through incest. And in accordance with the complementarity of simulation and identity that we encounter earlier, if the identification is that of the object on high, the simulation is indeed the writing that corresponds to it the flux that flows from this object, the graphic flux that flows from the voice. Simulation does not replace reality. It is not an equivalent that stands for reality, but rather it appropriates reality in the operation of despotic overcoating. It produces reality on a new full body that replaces the earth. It expresses the appropriation and production of the real by a quasi-cause. In incest, it is the signifier that makes love with the signifieds. System of simulation is the other name for signification and subordination. And what is simulated and therefore produced through the incest that is itself simulated and therefore produced, all the more real for being simulated and vice versa, is something very much like the extreme states of a reconstituted, recreated intensity. With his sister, the despot simulates a zero state from which the phallic force will arrive, like a promise, whose hidden presence in the very interior of the body must be situated at the extreme limit. And with his mother, the despot simulates a super force where the two sexes would be at the maximum degree of externalization, externalization of their specific natures, the B-A-B-A of the phallus as voice. Um, so to go back to someone was asking about uh, incest and how this works, and because uh, I think it was Gearing, that this is not a question of whether or not the despot marries his true sister. And by true sister, they mean biological or whatever, like who we would call his sister or his true mother. It doesn't even matter. It's that once incest is possible, it matters little whether it is simulated or not, since in any case, something else again is simulated through incest. We're now in this place of representation where Thing means thing means thing means thing. We're past we're past the direct connection. We've we've stepped into this new wild frontier where 
everything's overcoated despotically. I'll leave it open for a second, uh, but I'm also happy to dive forward to the next paragraph because we get into bisexuality and homosexuality and all kinds of fun stuff. All right. Hence, something else is always at issue in royal incest. Bisexuality, homosexuality, castration, transvestism has so many gradients and passages in the cycle of intensities. This is because the despotic signifier aims at the reconstitution of the full body of the intense earth that the primitive machine had repressed, but on new foundations or under new conditions present in the deterritorialized full body of the despot himself. This is the reason that incest changes its meaning or locus and becomes the repressing representation. For what is at stake in the overcoding affected by incest is the following that all the organs of all the subjects, all the eyes, all the mouths, all the penises, all the vaginas, all the ears, and all the anuses become attached to the full body of the despot, as though to a peacock's tail of a royal train, and that they have in this body their own intensive representatives. Royal incest is inseparable from the intense multiplication of organs and their inscription on the new full body. Saad saw clearly this always royal role of incest. The apparatus of social repression, psychic repression, i.e. the repressing representation, now finds itself defined in terms of supreme danger that expresses the representative on which it bears, the danger that a single organ might flow outside the despotic body, that it might break away or escape. Suddenly the despot sees rising up before him, against him, the enemy who brings death, an eye with too steady a look, a mouth with too unfamiliar a smile. Each organ is a possible protest. It is at one and the same time that a half-deaf Caesar complains of an ear that no longer hears and sees weighing on him the look of Cassius, lean and hungry, and the smile of Cassius, who smiles in such a sort as if he mocked himself. A long chronicle that will carry the assassinated, dismembered, disorganized, filed down body of the despot into the latrines of the city. Wasn't it already the anus that detached the object on high and produced the eminent voice? Didn't the transcendence of the phallus depend on the anus? But the latter is revealed only at the end, as the last vestige of the vanished despot, the underside of his voice. The despot is nothing more than this dead rat's ass suspended from the ceiling of the sky. The organs begin by detaching themselves from the despotic body, the organs of the citizen risen up against the tyrant. Then they will become those of private man. They will become privatized after the model and memory of the disgraced anus, ejected from the social field, the obsessive fear of smelling bad. The entire history of primitive coding, of despotic overcoding, and of the decoding of private man turns on these movements of flows. The intense germinal influx, the surflux of royal incest, and the reflux of excrement that conducts the dead despot to the latrines and conducts us all to today's private man. The history sketched out by Artaud in his masterpiece Heliogabal. Heliogabal. I'll never pronounce that correctly. The entire history of the graphic flux goes from the flood of sperm in the tyrant's cradle to the wave of shit in his sewer tomb. All writing is so much pig shit. All writing is this simulation, sperm, and excrement. Sometimes it's very fucking poetic. I just love it. 
Uh, I'll, I'll leave it open if anyone wants to say something. I'm good with awkward silences. I make the joke often, but I'm happy to just sit here for a moment. Uh, is there a specific text resmelling bad or is that a general statement? I think it's a comment about assholes. I, I just think it's a comment about how assholes uh, smell bad. Am I wrong? Uh, maybe there's a specific text because I know later on they're specifically referencing our toes play uh, to a dove of the body of God. Um, but I do think um, that's specifically their sort of joke. It's hard to tell sometimes. Um, but it's this, the analogy of, uh, of private man, the disgraced anus ejected from the social field, sharing the obsessive fear of smelling bad, which I like. It's safe to assume they're making fun of Freud when they say something about an ass. That, that flows. That flows. <laughs> uh, Rimka asks a question about the previous paragraph. Uh, can we explain the phallus as voice? Ooh. Does anyone want to take a crack at that one? In? Anyone? I'm, I'm happy to do it. Webcam? I was washing dishes. I'm sorry. I, didn't, I don't know what I'm supposed to talk about. That's okay. Uh, so the final line here, let me find the specific source that it's coming from. Um, the, the final line of the previous paragraph is, uh, with his sister, the despot simulates a zero state from which the phallic force will arise like a promise whose hidden presence in the very interior of the body must be situated at the extreme limit. And with his mother, the despot simulates a super force where the two sexes would be, quote, at the maximum degree of externalization of their specific nature, the BA, BA of the phallus as a voice. And that specifically, I don't know what that's a direct reference to. I'll, I'm gonna check and I'll be right back. We'll can talks, hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm sort of confused. I'm not sure what they're talking about. I mean, I mean the phallus is supposed to situate sexual difference, right? So not the difference between man and woman, but sexual difference as such. So it's, it's a difference in itself. Um, and, and there's this sort of progression between the difference between the image and then the difference between the sort of rules that regulate the image and then a difference in those rules themselves that, that is then the real. And then that's sexual difference. And that's sort of kicked off by this, I don't know, dialectic of the phallus. Yeah, and I, the, the reference is to Guy Rosalato, his book, Essays of the Symbolic, which uh, doesn't exist in English anywhere, nor can I find anything about him. So uh, we'll have to save that question, perhaps. <laughs> anyone wants to try though i'm more than happy to listen one might think that the system of imperial representation was in spite of everything milder than that of territorial representation the signs are no longer inscribed in the flesh itself but on stones parchments pieces of currency and lists according to whitfigel's law of diminishing administrative returns wide sectors are left semi-autonomous insofar as they do not compromise the power of the state the eye no longer extracts a surplus value from the spectacle of suffering. It has ceased to evaluate. It has begun rather to forewarn and keep watch. 
to see that no surplus value escapes the overcoating of the despotic machine, for all the organs and their functions experience a detachment and elevation that relates them to and makes them converge on the full body of the despot. In point of fact, the regime is not milder. The system of terror has replaced the system of cruelty. The old cruelty persists, especially in the autonomous or quasi-autonomous sectors, but it is now bricked into the state apparatus, which at times organizes it and at other times tolerates or limits it in order to make it serve the ends of the state and to subsume it under the higher superimposed unity of a law that is more terrible. As a matter of fact, the law's opposition or apparent opposition to despotism comes late, when the state presents itself as an apparent peacemaker between classes that become distinct from the state, making it necessary for the latter to reshape its form of sovereignty. S simple, fairly straightforward paragraph. Uh, we're no longer in a place of cruelty, and it feels like, oh, well, things are better. It's like, ah, nope, nope, nope. Now we're in a place of utter terror where, again, previous to this, we would go about our day. Maybe I'd, I'd have my skin etched. I'd have my debts clear in front of me. I'd deal with things as I dealt with them. And uh, the as they would say, uh, my desires came up sort of directly against the real. Being in a place of representation where things are written and determined and, and coded and everything has to be coded, now it's important the eye is watching. The eye is taking this in, looking. Uh, not, re, not, not taking in cruelty, but instead keeping an eye out for transgressions. Uh, because ultimately that's now what we are in. We are in a place of representation. Everything must fit within that. It's how we understand things. That's all we know. Because we're about to move into the law itself and how laws come to be and how the edict against incest comes to be and how again social production is organized and moved and how we behave within it so i will remember right where we left off but i want to spend you know we have another 10 minutes uh, set aside uh, uh, i have generally a hard stop at two but if anyone has questions over everything in this section so far not just this reading uh, where are you struggling where are you having issues where are you wanting definitions uh, don't hesitate to ask uh, we have a few minutes, or we can just have a really fun discussion if someone wants to bring up a thing. I want to go back to the uh, that last question about the phallus as voice. Is that the uh, phallus is uh, is a master signifier? Um, because it is uh, the phallus does represent uh, you know power and authority, right? I'm I'm gonna have to like I would love to have this discussion. I know I'm gonna end up saying something horribly wrong because i haven't read as lacan difficulty with lacan and i think a lot because i think this is coming from lacan the use of uh, voice and talking about the phallus's voice and ba ba these feel like lacanian just things the problem is that lacan in the entirety of his career changed significantly and i don't have enough of a read on his entire setup what I can say is that the the phallus, the the one part I'm I'm fairly, uh, uh, I I think I have uh, is that for Lacan the phallus is a signifier across everything. Uh, it's a, it's uh, something in the real. It's something in the symbolic. It's also in the imaginary, and this unique reality of it makes it absolutely one of the more powerful 
master signifiers. How this plays towards voice, um, I think I can make guesses, but I'd probably be wrong. I may have already been wrong on what I've said um, because this is where we get into the really other side of the con that I'm not super good at. I mean, I mean it, sort of, it sort of does regulate what can be said to an extent. Uh, did you have something to say, JK Wonder? Sorry if I cut you off. No, that's, that's a question. The, the, it does make sense that the the uh, the phallus as a voice. Voice is um, it relates to uh, you know spoken language, right? So it's the it is a you know in the um, the symbolic order of language, and and also in terms of uh, sexuality, the Oedipus complex, uh, you know. Um. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one i know um like this is one of those things that i i don't know the exact derivation of why they would use the term voice i actually don't know and i remember looking this up last time i could never find b a ba like fucking someone please point out where that is um like it's it's not in any of lacan's weird not diagrams <laughs> it's i couldn't figure out what they were referring to um, so there's a lot there. Uh, Rocketess asks, uh, doesn't he make the phallus a drive if it has a voice? Mm. That brings up the difference between the signifier and the, ob and the object A. So, the, so you've got, you know, you've got these detachable objects. You've got the feces, the gaze, the breasts, um, in the voice um maybe there's a couple more but but the, the i guess another hmm so man is only man in juxtaposition to woman right so in order for there to be a, a man out of sexual difference it needs this exclusion uh, that is woman, um, that, uh, that, that totalizes whatever man is in some arbitrary way. Um, but at the same time, the exclusion has to be an exclusion. It can't be incorporated into this totality. Um, and so woman for man serves as an object A, and then that's the connection between the phallus uh, as a signifier and the phallus as a partial object. So just if real quick, because sense. it's, so the, the libidinal effects of the, so the, there's so many things that are like knock-on effects of the phallus. It would be the gaze lost, but voice, let's assume voice is like an awkward translation here. Uh, but like, a person's voice and their their introduction language and signification comes through the phallus in Lacan. Like if, if we assume voice isn't literally spoken word, but instead like the 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 experience of language. Um like the gaze and the voice are object petite ah. I just what you were saying made me connect to this. So if 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 object petite ah is ultimately like uh, like the crazy versions, the uh, exemplary versions of them are 
uh, the gaze and the voice, then that would like, let's just imagine, I'm just trying to think maybe it's, it's just awkwardly worded that in that way, we would be talking about the phallic being very responsible for the voice because it is, it's just, we're now talking like three steps really to get there. It may just be worded funny. Yeah, for sure. Um, but he ends up like not really saying foul as much after he does. I think it's, I can't remember which seminar, but the other side of psychoanalysis, because the phallus contains like very particular, it, it, it contains a specific connotation. Right. But, but, but I still think it's helpful in so far as you can sort of spot the, the, phallic signifier you know anytime you go to a mega church or something or anytime someone's talking about the invisible hand of the market um that reminds me of the phallus as a master signifier um but but essentially the master signifier is just the ground of signification that is supposedly self-referential but you can't ever get to it and it's and and the reason why is because it's displaced the real it's you've you've gotten language and you've marked on flesh language and this is why he suggests that lack comes from this symbolic register um because, because I mean, what happens anytime you try to investigate one of these, uh, whenever you start to investigate one of these master signifiers, it just ends up being nonsense. It ends up being meaningless. It ends up being a matter of faith is what, and, and power and authority, right? Um, but, but that's not all, you know? And, and that's why I posted this um, Upaya. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. But it's essentially, it's uh, the wiki says voluntary action driven by an incomplete reasoning. Like, like you've got to be able to maybe act without being able to know everything. Uh, that's the, the master signifier. Um, helps with this, right? You can't know everything about, you know, the, the, the centipede can't, you know, be able to know on the most um, molar of levels how, how all of its legs move. Otherwise, it just fumble all over itself. Um, and the, the master signifier aids in this as well. So anytime I want to try to do science, do an experiment, I don't need to rehash exactly to the very nth degree what science is right i mean i mean it's nice and then there's the danger you get lazy and you start just carrying around this master signifier science that's sort of just a banner for specific activities but no one really knows what they're doing and like like so what is it what i passed by a quote the other day and it was something like uh deleuze was saying something like uh you know, you need to deserve your life or something like that. And it was in response to like pain or something. Maybe you can clarify that for me, Brooks, if you've heard it. Uh, that doesn't sound like a, a thing he'd I say. Can find, I can find it again. Please, please do. Was, I'm curious. 
but it, uh, and I think it was like he was pulling from Nietzsche or something. But you know, what is life, right? Can can you tell me exactly what life is? I've seen some things. Are you high? Like, are we having that discussion right now? What's happening? No, no, I'm making I'm making the point of master signifier. If it's not clear enough. No, no, right. I so, mean, it's 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 the Lacan the Lacan line Chavois. Uh, what do you want? Like that's the the demand constantly of the other. Am I high, asshole? Well, I'm just um, it's it just sounded like I, it's like it was weird. I cut into that discussion and you're like, like man, I mean, what is life? And then you like yeah, I'm no, like, what the fuck? <laughs> but you you get the so I, I'm just trying to maybe inject the point that um, that the uh, master signifier might, might not be something that you can so easily get out of or get away from. Um, and, and maybe you don't necessarily want to do that, but you do want to be mindful of its effects. Well, and I think like, DNG would drive right at that point because again, their entire thing is that the signification of meaning, especially in this, but we will come to capital and it's not drastically different under capital. There is, I'm not talking to the thing that is my object of my desire, but instead it's the object of desire of an object of desire of an object of another. And it's this ridiculous chain that ultimately the master signifier, we can't get away from because it's what determines all of these other elements. And it's why uh, they have this last line where they talk about, they're like, this sounds like uh, it may be good because at least we're not etching in bodies and being brutal. And it's like, no, there's actually... A a natural terror that comes with that with this everything now is uh ultimately due to or on the shoulders of this despot this god this being this godhead creature who's oh my god is the king he's so powerful like everything is due and therefore because of that his desires are all that matter to me because that's how my desires then become organized through representation this it, this goes the other way just like my desires outwards as I go through the three syntheses, my desires get recorded, blah, blah, blah. They move out from the other way. Thanks to the way representation works, his desires become mine and it misshapes my desires through the way the critique of representation through the paralogism I've brought up earlier. And this, this sort of setup is incredible when you start piecing it together as like, oh, so this is the kind of stuff that Lacan was talking about when we talked about the master signifier and where this comes on high and how it comes on high. It's, uh, there's a lot there, but it, again, I think it drives right at just in general, what the con was talking about, like my understanding of it, pretty spot on. Someone's, someone's at the door. I gotta be All right, cool. Yeah, have fun, Kent. Uh, it is, it is also, uh, our two hour mark. Uh, if anyone has any further questions, don't hesitate to write in chat. Uh, hit us up on uh, Twitter, DNGQC. Uh, hit us up on Patreon. If you're supporting what we're doing, DGQC. Uh, and see us next week where I actually have marked the page and we will start properly at exactly noon PST. I hope to see you all there. Thank you very, very much. Oh, that's a lot. Thank all of you for joining so very much. <laughs>